Our brothers and sisters, do please be seated. And if you could keep your Bible open at that chapter of Matthew, Matthew chapter 1, on page 961, that is the preaching text for today. And if you look in the inside, the center page of your white bulletin, you will find a sermon outline, which I hope will make it easier for you to follow. In addition, I'm conscious that at any moment the sound might cut out, and if that's the case and I'm forced to shout, um, it would be nice at that point if you could move forward and I will just try to carry on as best as I can. So brothers and sisters, let us turn to God in prayer before we look at his word. Let us pray. Almighty God, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be pleasing in your sight. O God, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. When I was growing up, there was a program on television. The concept was simple. Each week, a well-known figure would investigate their family tree they would explore their own genealogy. Uh, they would focus on interesting ancestors or perhaps notorious ancestors. They would research their time, how they lived, what they were like. But as they did their research, as they learned more about their fathers and grandfathers, their grandmothers and great-grandmothers, as they learned more about where they had come from, invariably, they also learned much about themselves. It's the reason the show was called, Who Do You Think You Are? Who do you think you are? Because the entire premise of that program was that the question of our identity, the question of who we are, can only be understood with reference to the past. No one of us here is born in a vacuum. No one is born without a context. On the contrary, we are all born into a context. We're born into history, a living and vibrant history. Uh, we are formed not in isolation from other people, but as the product of other people. Generations and generations of real people with real personalities with strengths and weaknesses, with foibles and failings. Now, I'm not that old, but I've already come to the age where I know that I'm like my father. I talk like him. I look like him, sadly for the both of us. I even drive like him, much to the annoyance of my wife. And I'm sure I'm not alone in that realization. As we get older, as we learn more about ourselves, as, as we reflect and grow mature, we become more and more aware that we resemble our parents. We bear their image, we carry their mark everywhere we go. And actually, the Bible affirms that observation. It agrees with our experience. It says that, that all of us will resemble our parents, and in fact, one parent in particular. All of us carry the likeness 
of our one shared Father. For while some of us are tall and others are short, some of us are stout and others skinny, some of us are shy and others sociable, yet all of us are sinful. All of us break the law of God. And ultimately, the reason why, the Bible says, is found in our family tree. It is found in our common ancestor, our shared parent. It is found in Adam. For the Apostle Paul says that sin came into the world through one man. And by that one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. That is, he's saying that when Adam rebelled against God, he was not acting merely as a private individual, but as our representative, as our head, as our father. And so when Adam fell, we fell in him. And the tragedy is that although Adam was made in, in the perfect image of God, in pure righteousness and holiness, through his sin, that image was corrupted and defiled. It was polluted and spoiled. And we are the heirs, the inheritors of that image and likeness. Who do you think you are? We are all sons and daughters of Adam. We bear his guilt we inherit his corruption. We thus imitate his action every day. And for this reason, we will also share his fate. But Paul also says, he continues, that just as sin came into the world through one man, death came through sin. And so death spread to all men. Every one of us here who is brought into the church and baptized at the back at the font, will one day be brought down right to the front in a box and from thence taken away to be buried. In the very first genealogy of the Bible, the first of many, the genealogy of Adam's descendants, the genealogy that begins with the exact same words as Matthew's gospel, and to which I think Matthew is deliberately pointing us. The genealogy that lists Adam's children and grandchildren and great-grandchildren, it repeats the same phrase again and again and again. He died, he died, he died, he died. And the point in Genesis is crystal clear. Creation is no longer good, 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 good as it was in the beginning, but it has been given over to death, 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 death. We are all born astride of the grave. And that reality, whether we like it or not, is the chief context of our lives. But it is also the chief context of the Bible. Death is the setting for Scripture's unfolding storyline. Death is the tension that has been awaiting resolution. And in today's passage, after, after generations and generations of waiting, after hundreds of years and thousands of years, that tension 
finds its resolution. That history, that grand story reaches its climax. And it does so in another family tree. Have a look down at verse 1. This is how Matthew begins his gospel, seemingly tedious but so profound. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Matthew is addressing us. He knows that we as sons and daughters of Adam, sons and daughters of corruption, that we need the son of Abraham. We need the son of David. And ultimately, we need the son of God. And the good news that Matthew presents is that Jesus is all three. Jesus is the son of Abraham who reverses God's curse. Jesus is the son of David who restores God's rule. And Jesus is the eternal son of God who renews God's image in us. And these things we shall look at together now, one by one. So first, Jesus is the son of Abraham. Now, brothers and sisters, Abraham is important in the Bible for this reason, and, and really for this reason alone. God made Abraham a promise. In response to his curse upon Adam and all of his fallen race, God made Abraham a promise of blessing, a promise of redemption and salvation, of, of forgiveness, of life, of reconciliation with him. It was a promise directed to Adam, but it was ultimately directed towards all nations, including us. It was the promise early on in redemptive history of global mission. And it is just as the apostle said in our epistle reading, that God preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, in you shall all the nations, including us, be blessed. And the way that that promise worked out was through the narrative of history and through the sons of Abraham. And ultimately, as Paul also told us, through one son in particular. One son, Jesus Christ, the means through which those blessings would come. And so Matthew, by pointing out that Jesus is the son of Abraham, is not saying that he is like Abraham. He doesn't share his mannerisms or his, his look, neither with Isaac nor Jacob nor David nor any of the others. It's not that Jesus is similar to them. The point is that Jesus is the son who was promised to Abraham, the heir of the blessings which God promised to him, the one through whom those blessings would flow to all nations, because Jesus is the one who by his death bears our curse that we deserve, so that through him the blessing which we don't deserve would come to us. As Paul says, in Christ the blessing of Abraham comes to us, and it can only come through the one who has made sin for us and suffered God's curse in our place. That is the first point. Now the second. Jesus is the son of David. 
Now, I, I think most of you will know that David was the great king of Israel. He was the king after God's own heart, uh, the king against whom all later kings would be assessed and judged. But most importantly, just like Abraham, he was the king to whom God had made promises. David was the king to whom God promised an eternal throne, to whom God promised an everlasting dynasty, to whom God said in our psalm reading, I will establish his offspring forever and his throne as the days of heaven. The throne of Assyria fell. The throne of Babylon fell. The throne of Persia fell. The throne of Alexander the Great, that greatest of all military commanders, fell. The throne of Rome fell. The throne of the British Empire fell. And that of the American Empire will fall. And the Chinese Empire, whichever empire takes its place, will all fall. But God promised David that his house, his dynasty, his kingdom would never fall. For as God said in our psalm, once for all I have sworn by my holiness, I will not lie to David. His offspring shall endure forever, his throne as long as the sun before me. However, if we were Jews in Matthew's time, if we were reading this in the first century, then there would appear to be a problem with that promise. There was one tiny, eeny-weeny bit of a snag. David's house hadn't lasted. His dynasty did end. His throne had fallen. And it fell during the deportation to Babylon, of, of which Matthew is quite clear in verse 11. By David's time, by Matthew's time, David's throne was no more. It had ceased to be. It was an ex-throne. And with it, the hopes of Israel, the hopes of God's promises to Abraham as well as David, those, those promises which include our blessing had fallen. When Judah was conquered, when Jerusalem was captured, when Jehoiakim, the king, was brought to Babylon, those promises seemed to have failed. But actually, in Matthew, he makes the point clear that those promises hadn't failed. Israel had failed, to be sure. They, they had been deported for their own sin, just as God had warned. But that didn't stop God's plans to bless all the nations and to do so through his promised means, through the son of Abraham and the son of David. And for this reason, Matthew picks up right where the deportation and exile left off with Jeconiah in verse 12. He says, after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel, Shealtiel the father of Zerubbabel, Zerubbabel the father of Abiad, and so on and so on and so on, right the way through to Jesus in verse 16 to show that David's throne remained that a legal heir to that kingdom existed, and that God's promise, most importantly, had stood firm. And that is encouraging to us. Brothers and sisters, how often is it that, that we are tempted to believe 
that God is slow in fulfilling his promises or that his promises to us have failed and that there is no prospect, no hope that they can ever be accomplished. But let us take comfort in the testimony of Scripture that God is always faithful to his promises, even when it seems hopeless, and he will accomplish them in his time for those who will patiently wait upon the Lord. So Matthew, despite the tyranny of evil that had taken captive this world, that had usurped God's rule in a vain act of defiance, Matthew is making clear that God's rule would be restored and visibly in Jesus, the son of David, the inheritor of that eternal throne. So that's the first two points. Jesus is the son of Abraham. Jesus is the son of David. And now we come to the third and the final point. But before I do that, I have something to confess to you. Uh, something which will doubtless make me a little unpopular. Uh, before I did pastoral ministry, uh, I used to teach English grammar. I was a paid tutor. Uh, that means that scattered across this city, there are children whose parents would pay me to teach them the technicalities of English grammar. And if you have children, may I suggest what a, a thoroughly effective form of punishment that is. Now, in these verses, I think understanding grammar is extremely important to understanding Matthew's meaning. And that's why I'm going to dwell on it. And in particular, I think we, we must understand the difference between a, a verb in the active voice and a verb in the passive voice. Now, just bear with me. This is a little tricky, but it, it bears fruit. Now, we know that a verb is, is a doing word, right? To run, to eat, to sing, so on and so forth, things that we do. Now, a verb is said to be active when the action is done by the subject, and it is passive when the action is done to the subject. So let, let me give you an example, okay? Consider the following sentence. The preacher bored the congregation, okay? Now, that is an active verb because the preacher, the subject, is the one doing the action. The passive would be this. The congregation was bored by the preacher. You see, they're, they're the, the, the subject, the, the congregation is receiving the action. Now, this is how it applies to our passage. In verses 2 to 16, there is one verb which is repeated 40 times. And that means it's extremely important. Uh, and that verb is, is uh, in the original, it is ganao. But in our ESV Bibles, that, that verb is translated with the same phrase, the father of. So in verse 2, we see, for example, Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and so on and so forth. Now in the King James, it actually translates it with just one word. It's a little bit more simple. The word begat which is a kind of an old-fashioned word that means something like to bear a son, to, to father a son. And so the King James simply says, Abraham begat Isaac, and Isaac begat Jacob, and Jacob begat, and so on and so forth. Now, my point is this. For 39 out of those 40 times, that verb is active. 
right? Abraham is the one who begat Isaac, and Isaac is the one who begat Jacob. But in the last verse, right at the very end, in verse 16, concerning Jesus, that verb switches suddenly from active to passive. So notice that Matthew doesn't say that Joseph begat Jesus. He's going to deny that in the following verses. He doesn't even say that Mary begat Jesus, despite that being true in a sense. Instead, what he says is that Jesus was begotten of Mary. He, he was begotten. And that means that, that Jesus is different. He's not like any of his other ancestors. He wasn't the product of man's act or decision as we all were. No man begat him. He wasn't fathered by Joseph. And more importantly, that means he wasn't fathered by Adam. So he doesn't share the corruption that comes from him that we all have. Jesus has a parentage, but it is a divine parentage. He is, as our, as our creed says, eternally begotten of the Father, as the eternal image of the invisible God and the exact imprint of his nature. And so therefore, when for us and our salvation, he is begotten of Mary and became man, Jesus represents a completely new kind or a completely new humanity. A humanity that is unstained by sin, that is undefiled and uncorrupted. And more than that, a humanity which is incorruptible, that, that can't fall or fail. So the person of Jesus, fully man and fully God, one person, is the essence of God's promises to Abraham and to David. His person is God's response to the fall. In him is the restoration of our fallen humanity. Uh, he dies in our flesh to raise us to new life in him, to perfected life, so that we in him are renewed after the image of God in knowledge, righteousness, and holiness. Jesus is the eternal image of God who renews God's image in us or restores us to that perfect image, the image which was lost, defaced, marred, spoiled in Adam. So Jesus is the son of Abraham, he's the son of David, but he accomplishes these things because he is the eternal son of God. Now, brothers and sisters, as I close, I want to think about ourselves. What can we learn from this text? Uh, we learn much about Jesus, to be sure, by looking into biblical history that he is the son of David and of Abraham. We learn about ourselves by looking at that same history, that we are sons of Adam. But I want to make one point, and it concerns that promise to Abraham in particular, because I think in a sense that, that Matthew is beginning and ending his gospel with a similar kind of idea. By calling Jesus the son of Abraham, he is, he is calling to mind that promise that God made to Abraham, that, that God would bless Abraham, his descendants, and all nations through Abraham, that, that God's promise to Abraham included global mission. And throughout the genealogy, I think we see examples of God's purpose in history that included the nations. We see people like Ruth, not a member of Israel. We see people like the wife of Uriah, who was a Hittite, not a member of Israel. We see people like Rahab, the prostitute, again, not a member of Israel, yet included in the people 
And through them, the promised Messiah came, astonishingly. And Matthew ends his gospel with with the declaration that because Jesus has received all power and authority, because he is that son of David, that therefore people are to go and make disciples of every nation in accordance with that promise God made to Abraham. That Christ deserves those nations. He He has won them through his death and that he shall certainly get them. The end of Matthew's gospel sees the initiation of the mission for us, the church, but that mission is founded in ancient history in God's promise. And perhaps we might think that that is a big task, a task that we cannot achieve, that is dangerous to even attempt. We might think that it is a task for other people, for better people maybe, the kind of people whom God would use. But have a look again at at some of the characters in this genealogy through whom God worked in his rich tapestry of history to bring forward the Christ. Just look at Abraham himself. Abraham, the man who pretended that his wife was his sister so that another man could sleep with her so that he would avoid getting into trouble. It's a bit awkward. What about his grandson, Judah? Have you heard about him? That was quite messed up. Judah was a man who slept with his daughter-in-law, but he only did so because he mistook her for a prostitute. What about Solomon, who is the son of Bathsheba, the wife of Uriah, the wife that David stole and had killed Uriah for? What about Manasseh, that that man who committed that great evil and found repentance in the end? This genealogy is a list of people who are by no means perfect. They are broken. They are failures in so many ways. People that we would deem it unlikely that God would work his plans and purposes through. And so my challenge is this, that if God has worked through history, through these types of people, if he has worked his grand purpose of bringing salvation to all nations through people like Abraham and Judah, if he worked through the deceiver Jacob, if he worked through David, if he worked through Manasseh, if he worked through Rahab the prostitute, then can he not work through us? And can he not work through you? God promised to Abraham that he would reverse the effects of the fall, the curse, and would bring blessing to each and every nation. And he has done so through the proclamation of the gospel of Jesus the Christ, the son of Abraham, the son of David. Brothers and sisters, as all authority in heaven and earth has been given to him, let us rejoice in the gospel that we have received and let us proclaim him to every nation. Let us pray. Our loving and gracious Father, the sovereign Lord of all history, we thank you that according to your grace, you made promises to Abraham to bring blessing to sinners like us, the wretched descendants of Adam, and that in history you worked out that promise through, the eternal, through your 
eternal and only begotten Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ. We pray, Father, that you would help us to embrace the promises that you have made to us in him and to proclaim him to a world that is lost. And we ask this for your name's sake. Amen.